you know, one of the things I want to just reference is that um, what, what has struck me is that with the SDGs is the, uh, I think there's a small number of members of Congress that know what SDGs are, and I think there's a number of progressive mayors in the United States that know what the SDGs are, but every major American company, every company in the Fortune 500 has adopted the SDGs and uses it as a lens to look at problems and how they solve problems and how they measure progress. That has shocked me, and it's been really impressive. And so I know we'll have a chance to talk about this um, and unpack this with this really interesting group of folks. So I'm gonna move over to my moderator seat, but I wanna thank Chevron and I and welcome all of you to being here. Thank you. So I did not want this to be a typical discussion about SD, uh, this, the ending poverty in our time, and so I was really, I put a lot of time and effort into trying to get four interesting speakers, uh, and I, all of them are people I know and like and respect. So let me far, first start with my friend, uh, Acting Assistant Administrator for the Bureau for Asia, Gloria Steele. Gloria, thanks for being here. I've known you for a long time. You started your career at 10 years old. 12. 12 <laughs> in international development. And um, have had, has had a, you've had a wonderful career in international development. So I, when I, I, I thought I wanted somebody who, was, who had a lot of experience, had really worked in the field, but also worked in Washington and thought about global development, and I wanted an AID voice, I thought of you. So I'm really glad that, that you agreed to do this. So could you talk a little bit about your experience, both from your, from your experience and from AID's perspective, about SDG goal number one and how are we doing on, on ending poverty? Thank you, thank you, Dan. Um, how are we doing? I think from, according to the to UNDP, from uh, the 1990s to now, we've got uh, extreme poverty by over half, and yet one out of 10 people still live below the uh, international poverty line of $1.90 a day, and uh, the majority of the poor are still the women, and majority of the poor res reside in, um, in um, rural areas. Despite all the investment in rural development through the years, 60s, 70s, 80s, they continue to have, that's, that continues to be where most of the poor reside. I, I, I think that um, we really need to think about how we address, if how we address extreme poverty. Uh, we need to think outside the box, as they say, and, th and turn the paradigm on its head. One of the things that I did when I was in the Philippines was noticed that um, a lot of growth was happening in the Metro Manila and the areas around Metro Manila. And, um, and I thought maybe if we created in a more managed approach, Metro Manila's outside of Manila, we may be able to uh, have a more equitable growth because um, most of the well-off people were around Manila. And so we, we started this program on secondary cities development, uh, trying to address rural poverty by investing in secondary cities. Um, and uh, with the thinking that 
you know, we ask farmers to grow better, you know, to grow more and give them better seeds, give them fertilizer, but never worry about where they're going to market this. And so they end up losing at the end. And we need to worry about the unintended negative effects of programs that we, we lay out there. And so the idea here is to try and develop markets for their goods closer to them because they're very small profit margin for uh, agriculture and then have a market for their labor when they're not farming. And so we're trying this in the Philippines. We're trying this in Indonesia, where growth is very inequitable. Um, Indonesia is one of the most, you know, where growth is most inequitable. And in Myanmar, where we want to be able to not just equalize growth, but also address discriminations against et ethnic groups uh, living outside of Myanmar, uh, of Yangon. Um, just a word on extreme poverty. Um, I think AID has taken a different approach. In the past, we've always said as our goal, eliminating extreme poverty. That's an impossible task. And uh, at a certain point, I do want to talk about the approach we've taken on the journey to self-reliance, which is a very different approach to addressing all the 17 sustainable development goals. But let me stop. All there. right, thank you. That, I'll come back to you about this and about the journey to self-reliance and, and the new approach. That sounds great. Ambassador Speckart, thanks for being here. Um, I really wanted a faith-based voice, and I also I know that you, you had a wonderful career in the Foreign Service. You were U.S. Ambassador to Cyprus. Uh, Greece and uh, Belarus. Greece and Belarus, okay. And so you were, you had been, you'd served in two, two posts as ambassador. Uh, and then you took on this role uh, several years ago, Lutheran World Relief. You've been doing some really interesting things at Lutheran World Relief, rethinking the business model of a, of a faith-based uh, development NGO. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what you've been doing at Lutheran World Relief and how does Lutheran World Relief think about SDG number one? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. I think I can actually just kind of build off of what Gloria was saying. I think the key for us in our journey has been to really understand what uh, self-sustaining development means, how you have an interaction uh, that helps support communities and families, but that'll have a lasting impact. And I think the realization for us has been similar to what Gloria was talking about. It's not enough just to where we've been focusing in the past uh, for the rural extreme poor was increasing crop productivity, uh, diversifying the crops, providing a little bit of financing to get uh, better inputs and so forth, and then leaving it to the market to help support their incomes. Uh, we found that you need a more holistic approach for a couple of reasons. One, uh, first of all, because in those rural areas, there isn't really a well-developed market. So they're often at the reliance of one particular trader, uh, and there's a monopolistic tendency going on. Second, uh, there's not enough economic activity to support the next generation of the family. Uh, and this is becoming important as well for uh, the private sector who's looking at uh, these long-term supply chains where we're helping coffee farmers and the reality is the next generation of children are not staying on those coffee farms. And so for us, we decided we needed to take a much more holistic view of how we do development beyond just rural agricultural development to all the different elements that uh, are composed of that. And for us, that has meant in just the last couple of years launching impact investing so we can invest actually in enterprises. You have a, a for-profit subsidiary, right? Yeah, for-profit subsidiary because we wanted to be for-profit to ensure that it's self-sustaining and then building in the right kind of business models. It uh, owns uh, things like uh, in Uganda, a coffee company that has changed the terms of trade for coffee farmers in Uganda. 
second, we've done a merger uh, and put together a Lutheran World Relief with uh, IMA World Health because we felt that we needed to have a much stronger health component to our holistic development because these families cannot be successful in ending poverty if they have no solutions to the health challenges that can knock a family off of any success they've had on the income front. And last, we just uh, several months ago did an acquisition of a technology company in the UK in the education sector uh, because we felt that a key component of success is going to be building in transparency and accountability both for ourselves and what we're doing in impacts but also for local communities and governments to see how money is being spent because I think on this poverty issue, we can talk about that later, there's a big lack of trust that money going to development or aid, even at the very local level, is actually going for those purposes. And they need to be able to see where money is going, what the results are, how it's being distributed. Um, and last point, I guess, is I don't, I think as a nonprofit sector, and probably applies to the government as well, though, is we ask these communities to be involved in transformational change, and yet we're very reluctant to do that ourselves. Mm -hmm. We're very used to doing it the old way, and we're comfortable doing it a little bit more the old way, or a little bit less the old way, and changing a little bit at the edges. And we're asking communities to just fundamentally revolutionize the way they're doing everything to be successful, and yet we're not ready to do that. So I'm kind of pushing our sector to make sure we are really thinking outside the box uh, and merging not because somebody's bankrupt, but merging because it makes the most sense or acquiring uh, a subsidiary from a different uh, country that has technological skills because we need to leapfrog rather than doing this in an incremental way. I would, I would guess that 20 years ago, and I, I don't think this is a guess, this is probably more experience, I don't believe most of, the, of your peer competitors or collab cooperators had a for-profit subsidiary, was thinking about making a, a, an acquisition of a, of a, co a tech company. There, there were probably, there were several examples of probably to prove the fact that, you know, there were, there were probably to, 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 to prove the, there were exceptions to prove the rule. So it seems to me that the kinds of things you're doing with Lutheran World Relief, I think, A, are really interesting, but B, I suspect many of your colleagues are also thinking in, in different ways than they did 10 or 20 years ago. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. We're not alone in this space. I think a lot are thinking it. I think the, ch the thing where I'm kind of pushing folks, though, is for impact investing, for instance, I think the normal way it's done is you create a separate office, you have this separate group of people, you go out and fire some, hire some uh, investment banker types, and they go out and find some interesting investments. That's not going to work. It can't be stovepiped. And the challenge and the difficult part is how do you take those folks who are a different culture, different mindset, and integrate them into your development uh, culture and your development programs and activities. So when you're doing a project in, in uh, Uganda, you've got a development grant component, you've got an investment component, you've got a business connection to uh, suppliers uh, that has already been worked out through relationships that NGOs aren't normally uh, accustomed to in sales. You're finding markets back here in the U.S. for those companies. Uh, uh, you're doing direct trade in some cases. That, that's the part I think that's the hardest for our sector. We can come up with new shiny objects. It's how do we integrate these uh, new elements actually into an integrated whole. And, uh, you know, this is a, a, a long, uh, risky pass here in the sense that we tried integrated development in the past, yes, uh, and we just couldn't do it. Everybody thought it was the right idea 20 years ago or 30 years ago, That's so right. we gave it a good try. But the donors like going back. The It's not just donors. The appropriators on the Hill, I'm a health person. I want to give my money to health. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm a rural development person. I'm in the food aid bill. I want to go through uh, rural development and security. That's right. 
that's not how these poor live. Right. You know, they live in a holistic sense and they need their, they need the support that's going to get this path to self-reliance that's much more holistic. But we haven't been willing to do that. But just because we weren't able to crack it doesn't mean it was not still exactly. the right approach. Great. Thank you very much. Sarah, thanks again for being here. Um, you're the Senior Director for Global Government Affairs at Walmart. I consider Walmart to be a great force of good in the world. Uh, I think the power of your supply chains uh, is just amazing. and. You've done some really amazing work, and I, I wanted to have a, a large American multinational on this panel, and I'm so grateful that you agreed to do this. So could you talk a little bit about how does Walmart think about the SDGs, and how does it think about SDG 1, and how do you fit into this conversation? Sure. So thanks for having us here. And, and I think I should just caveat this and say this is a journey for us. Um, we've been evolving our thinking about Walmart's role in society and our place in society for a while. Um, we are a 500 billion plus company. We have 2.1 million people who work for us. Uh, we source from over 100 countries around the world. And so as Dan said, you know, we started to recognize probably about 15, 20 years ago, our role in society is probably different. Um, we not only have a fiduciary responsibility to our shareholders, but we have a responsibility to society as well. You've seen business changing in this way. I think you saw the business roundtable come out with a very similar statement. Our CEO is going to be the chair of the business roundtable in January, so there's not a ton of coincidence there, but it's, it's the right thing because it's in our own enlightened self-interest to have a sustainable planet. And when we think about sustainability, we think about people, planet, and communities. And that's really how we approach the SDGs. We look at our strengths as a business, which is our big supply chain, the people we employ, the communities we serve, and we think about what are the unlocks that aren't happening to create better economic mobility for people and to create more, sustain more sustainable supply chains. And when I mean that, I think sustainable for people and planet. So small s sustainability, looking at dignity at work at the same time we're looking at um, environmental sustainability. So it's interesting, you know, I will do anything for Dan. So he said, please come. And I said, yes. And then I went back and I was like, SDG one. And I was like, you know what? We don't list it here because we think of these other issues in the social and environmental issues, whether it's responsible supply chains or women or decent work as enablers to get to ending extreme poverty. Because you can't just end extreme poverty. You have to think about what are the drivers. So for us, we've been very focused on, okay, we're the world's largest grocer. So how do we focus on helping smallholder farmers have that access to market and have the market signals so that they're producing for the market? How do we focus on women and what are we doing for women-owned businesses and what are we doing for women in factories and how are we thinking about changing the dynamic for women um, in supply chains? What are we doing about issues like forced labor which have been super pervasive but without thinking about what are the drivers like responsible recruitment and how do we put those signals back into the marketplace? We're never going to get to extreme poverty. Um, I will say one of the things we've learned as we've moved into this space, and, and the first time I started talking about development, I was with development practitioners, and they're like, you, you're using our terms. It's wrong. You're a business. But we actually do have a shared vernacular now, I think. But that is, you know, for Walmart, working with the poorest of the poor is actually really, really hard because we are a big entity. We can do it in agriculture because the delta between what I need to train a farmer 
to produce a tomato in Central America to sell to my stores, you can actually do that within one growing cycle. Create a biofence, get good agricultural practices, tell me when the market's coming, get the right seeds. You can actually do that. When you're talking about businesses and businesses, you know, with, with standards and thinking about you know, products that have to have a barcode, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's actually much harder. And one of the things we learned, you know, when we worked with women's economic empowerment, we wanted to go into those, you know, co-ops and into the, the artisanal community and help them. And we actually were doing more harm than good because we could say, I want to buy that amazing bracelet made out of that horn, antelope horn, but can you show me that it meets our standards? Can you show me that you've had a responsible sourcing audit to make sure there are no children there? Can you, can you do you have a liability insurance to send it to me? The delta was just really too big. We would have been better off sending a check. So some of the things we've learned in, in doing this work is where is the right place for the private sector to intervene? We tend to engage more in economic opportunity and linkages to value chains because we feel like we know how to do that. We can think about what are the capacity building needs and we can actually create more sustainable supply chains. But I think part of this whole journey is being honest with yourselves, understanding what your strengths are, understanding what problems you're trying to work through, working collectively with business and government, and then, and then coming towards very specific and concrete goals. I will refer you to our ESG report. It will, in the last pages, every commitment we've ever made and how we're doing on it is here to try to be transparent so that whatever we're doing, other people know um, and can work with us collectively on it. Thank you. Sarah, I'm going to come back and ask you, I want you to talk when I come back to you about um, the work you've done on bringing women businesses into your supply chain and how many because I mean, when you guys make a commitment, it's 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 amazing. You can you can change systems. It's 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 the power of your supply chain is amazing. So, uh, Rich Bissell, thanks for being here. I really appreciate you being here. You're a senior advisor here at CSIS. You had a, a really interest. You've had a really interesting career. I remember the first time I met you 20 years ago. Andrew Natsios introduced us, and um, I was like, I I want to stay connected to this guy for the rest of my career. That was like the the takeaway from my meeting with you at the time. And you were at aid for a long time. You, you were at this, you ran science and technology bureau. You also ran, you were, ran the think tank and budget function at AID called PPC in another life. You also had a senior role at the World Bank Group. Let me just try a couple of, of, of word cloud phrases on you because I, I would argue that the, there's been a, an incredible amount of progress on reducing global poverty since you got into the business. And I, I would say, if you said to me, what, what are some of those things, some of it's, the, the economic growth in China, economic growth in India, economic growth in Brazil. Some has been major improvements in health, a lot of that funded by AID and, and global development investments, but other, others as well. Better public policy, I would argue that we've had cohorts of trained agronomists or economists or health officials or urban planners all over the developing world, many of them trained in the United States by U.S. universities, some of them financed by AID and others who've gone back over a 40 or 50 year period of time. It took a long time. You had uh, growth in global trade and you had um, debt forgiveness. And I would also argue some incredible technology breakthroughs, not just in health, but also in things like cell phone telephony. Mm -hmm. So I wanted you on this panel because I knew you'd had a historical context to this, but also I wanted you to kind of help me kind of sanity check a little bit some of the, some of the things that, that made some of these the, the, the reductions possible, 
but also I know there's some, there's some dangers in the way we, we do development that I know you also want to raise as well. So thanks, Rich, for being here. Oh, thank you, Dan, for letting me join this conversation. I think that, as, as you might guess from my background, I think science, technology, and innovation play a major role, uh, whether we intend for it to play that role or not. Um, <clears throat> so uh, when Dan raised the prospect of discussing um, the, uh, the first um, SDG, um, I have to admit that, that I, I read it and I reread it, and then I read the breakout of the um, targets within uh, the first one uh, that are put out by the UN, and so I reread those a few times. And I realized, as, as um, I think both Daniel and Sarah were getting at, is that really this first one ought to be the 17th because it is effectively a summation of everything that comes in the other 16. Um, and it's, uh, as Daniel said, it's holistic. It's, it, it requires a, a contribution or can experience a contribution from any one of the other 16. So what does that mean about where we stand in addressing um, poverty from an S&T, STI point of view? I have news for you. There's no silver bullet. And what we'll find is that, in fact, um, there are a whole lot of bullets out there. In fact, the bullets are flying. And the question is, which one will actually meet a target within what we would consider impoverished or extremely impoverished populations around the world. Now, I think we all share a moral position, and I think uh, the reason for the, this one being number one is that it states unambiguously uh, that, in fact, we're opposed to poverty, and we're extremely opposed to extreme poverty, but we don't have a game plan for getting from here to there. So what I want to suggest is that there are a few principles to keep in mind, and we can get into these further in the discussion if it's of interest. One of the key elements of these SDGs, as you know, they put out frequent statements about measuring progress. On number one, that's very dangerous because the poor and the extremely poor are the least prone to be tracked through existing data systems. In fact, they're mostly the missing population when generalizations are made about what's happening either in a global or a country context. And whenever, coming again from an empirical point of view, when I hear statements, I often go back to the source to see where'd they get that number for the number of people who are no longer poor or whatever the, the number may be. It may involve one of the specific 16. Sometimes there's better data. For instance, health data are better because much of it is organized or gathered, in fact, by major international donors and international organizations. And other as soft as marshmallows. It is somebody standing up who needed to come up with a number and said, well, we think that poverty in China has been reduced by 95%. Well, I could take that as a sort of a reasonable approximation, but it, it sounds statistically, I mean, to give it a number is as though they actually tracked each of those poor people. So that's the first element to keep in mind when we think about what we're accomplishing with this, and indeed what the impact of any STI investments could be. The second is that the poor, and particularly the extremely poor, are actually a quite conservative population. 
because for them the potential downside of change can be more life-threatening than the upside of change, change that STI would trigger. After all, many of them are living on the edge of death or their children dying. If their food availability drops by 10 or 20 percent, that's a catastrophe. It's not where you or I want to go on a diet and lose five or 10 pounds. There could be major consequences for them what matters most in their value system. So when I think about, I'm very modest about the contribution in one sense from science and technology and innovation because we're not the receptors, they're the receptors. And they have to come to the point where they want to adopt it, that it's important enough in their lives they're willing to take a risk to change. And that, that's a very important thing to realize. So I would just cite one example uh, that came across my reading the other day, which had to do with the sanitation issue in Nairobi. I don't know if you read about the company Sanergy, but the, it, what it realized, and because it was a group of people who, were, who know Nairobi and the poor in Nairobi very well, as you know, the, the, the formal and informal slums around Nairobi are very extensive and involved many, many people, which was that it was becoming a growing public health problem and threatening people's lives that they had no sanitation system. And we're talking about, you know, just everything about having to do with sanitation. There's no collection. It was dangerous. People can go out at night. They really had one latrine for every 575 households. So as a result, Sanergy was created to create a system that would work in the price range that operated in Nairobi so that people would have clean latrines, that they were safe, they were cleaned every day, they were cleaned out, and the produce that was in the latrines would actually go to a fertilizer plant in order to create an income stream at the end of the process. Now, sanitation is very important to poor people. They know it's awful. And indeed, it spreads disease and, and has a whole lot of bad, bad effects on their lives. So that's just an example of where a small degree of, there are two kinds of science in that, by the way. One is the technical latrines. They figured out how to make them so they don't smell so that in fact what's in them can be re recycled and so forth. The second is the social science one, is how do you organize so that somebody is able to pay for that and have the labor force that will in fact make it operate. So that's just one example of, of what I see is, as where you and I probably don't have a good idea about what would be the right thing, the priority for the poor. After all, we've spent 40 or 50 years turning out what we consider efficiency cook stoves that the world should want, and we now have probably a thousand designs, of which I'd say very few have ever been adopted on, up in scale. But if we, if we work with people in, in S&T, people who are close to the poor and close to the extremely poor, then I think that we'll find a way for S&T to make a massive difference going forward in ways that we can't necessarily know how to get there through some kind of roadmap. So that's an optimistic approach.
Yeah, I, I remain an optimist. I mean, if we look at the long, if we go, if we look over the last 30 or 40 years, the amount of people who are in extreme poverty has dropped a lot. Mm -hmm. And they estimate it's going to be about 6% in 2030. The goal for SDG 1 was to have 3% in poverty. We're not going to get there. And there's, there's some stubborn, some stubbornness, and some of it may be fixable through technological breakthroughs, but there's going to be some other things we're going to need to do as well. So, Gloria, let me come back to you and talk about the journey to self-reliance, this new approach, but I'd also like you to talk about, it seems to me that this 6% is going to be, a lot of it's going to be in Africa, and a lot of it's going to be in fragile and conflict-affected states. And when I think about your, the region that you're covering right now, I think of Afghanistan and, and maybe perhaps Pakistan as places where there's going to be stubborn pockets of poverty that, that you'll, be, you'll be thinking about and working on in, in sort of extreme poverty. Thank you for asking about the journey to self-reliance. I have worked in AID for a very, very long time. Since you were 12. Since I was 12. Um, and we've always articulated our goal and our vision in terms of eliminating extreme poverty. I think with Administrator Green's um, assumption of the administratorship, mm -hmm. he has really turned it around. We cannot eliminate extreme poverty for anyone. They have to be the people for whom the countries for whom we're doing this must take the lead in their own development. And so thus started the idea of the journey to self-reliance. It is different in that we focus on commitment and capacity. We develop the capacity for our partner countries, the government, the private sector, and civil society to take the lead, to identify the issues that they need to address, and to figure out how to address that. We develop their capacity to figure out how to address using science and technology, private sector engagement, the tools that we have learned along the way. But we don't do it for them. What we do is develop the capacity for them to do it on their own. And the other, and very, very important, is commitment. They have to like the, to do this more than we do. We cannot like it for them. It is never going to be sustainable when we like it, when we like to solve their problems more than they do. And so, um, <clears throat> and so what we've done is look at around 700 measures and metrics that are available out there and actually zeroed in on about 17 of them that measures capacity and commitment. Um, looking at open and accountable government, in terms of commitment, open and accountable government, good economic policies, et cetera, and the capacity for good policies, civil society capacity, et cetera. And so each of our missions now track the country's progress in, in these metrics and zero in on where you talked earlier about the development resources from governments bilateral. They are not where what they shrinking. used to be. They're shrinking. Not, not, not as a, sorry, Griller, not as a, we've continued to be generous, but as part of the larger pie, the pie has gotten a lot, a lot bigger. bigger. And That's so right. relatively to the expanded pie, it's smaller. It's not that we're more stingy. That's, that, is, that is true, and thanks for, yeah. for that clarification. Just we watching out not, for you. Yes, right. <laughs> yes. But we need to, at this, we need to get to the last mile. We need to be able to identify what's keeping 
us from being able to help them get to the last 3%. And, and we think that uh, what we need to focus on are, like I said, the commitment and capacity, being database-based, learning from our, uh, from our experiences in the past, learning about private sector engagement, how we can work with private sector better. We, I started by talking about developing markets uh, because private sector really lives lives. I mean, we know that, we have seen that, and we need to take advantage of that, uh, of, of the knowledge. We know where we are weak, where we are strong, and uh, we need to use the data that we have in order to get there. So at the end of the day, everything is really more data-driven than before, um, and then the focus on having our partner countries take the lead in getting them to addressing not just sustainable development goal one, but one through 17, um, all of them. And, well, um, as a person who works at a research institution and needing a self-employment program, I'm all for more research, so I think that's great. I'm more research, two thumbs up. But I think you're right. I mean, I think there's been a significant amount of investment in, in, funded by AID, funded by other aid agencies, funded by philanthropy on what, what works, what we're learning, and, and trying to, and you know, both measurement and evaluation, but also just pure development research. There was a Nobel Prize given this year for a, to three development economists. So, so I think there's been a significant amount of, of serious thinking and research and work on this. And I do think how that gets into the, how that bleeds into the practice, I think is, is really important. So I, I agree with you. Yeah, and I would add, for instance, one of the things we learned is integrated rural development. We invested significant amount of funding in that. And really, they didn't really, um, it didn't really generate much, you know, much impact for us. So we should move on and find out why that did not work and what we can do. Earlier in the last two years, we were investing a significant amount of money on countering violent extremism. Well, we haven't really been able to counter that. We haven't had much success and learn about why, what are the root causes. Our own conventional wisdom about what causes violent extremism may not be what causes them. Um, and so really understanding better so that we can get the, mo the ma maximum impact out of investments of taxpayer money. I agree. I agree. So Ambassador Specker, you, you mentioned earlier about poverty and the issue of lack of trust. Could you talk a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, I think this can, uh follow on a little bit on what Gloria is talking about as well, which is I think when we say we fail, we, we t it's oftentimes because, again, we view things as a project. Mm -hmm. We failed in our project to solve these problems. And you talked a little bit about that, uh, that these are, are not ours to solve at the beginning. At the same time, uh, it starts with the communities, it starts with the families, and it starts with social trust in those things. For me, development and this whole goal is not about a project to end poverty. It's about relationships and relations and getting those things right. It's the relationships inside communities. It's the relationships between communities and the private sector. It's the relationships between communities and their governments. It's the relationship between peoples and between tribes. When you start getting those pieces right, then you can have development. And when you ignore all those things and have a bunch of deliverables that say we're gonna produce this amount of increased productivity or something else, it doesn't work. So for me, that's why nonprofits are a key component in this. I think they have a special um, particular role uh, because they carry a lot of social trust 
in these environments. In a place like Africa, anywhere from 10 to 70 percent of health services are provided by the faith community in those, mm -hmm. those countries. They understand why you're there, because people have become very skeptical about where that money is going. That's why I said we need to be more transparent in how money is spent, because they don't view this money as coming to them anymore. So for me, that social trust is key. I'd just like to add one other piece to this discussion, though, and that is ending extreme poverty. Um, it's not maybe ours to end, but I, I'm nervous about kind of the USAID approach that says, hey, if you don't have the right policies, if, you're, don't have the, if you don't have this right framework, we're going to move on to the next country because, and that's maybe where the faith-based NGOs and nonprofits role is, which is, no, that doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me that you got the lucky draw and you have an autocratic ruler and a bunch of people uh, taking all the wealth of the country, so we're going to wait and come back in a decade or two when you get rid of that guy. For me, ending extreme poverty it means we're going to have to work around those people because that's where those places are going to be. When I joined this organization five years ago, what I noticed right away was the more extreme poverty is more and more going to be in the fragile, failed states. And so what I've been doing with our nonprofit is ensuring we're building the capacity to work in conflict-ridden, difficult, extreme, and hostile environments, because that's where they're going to be. So the, the, the toolkit is going to have to change considerably if we're really serious about ending extreme poverty in those places. And that comes back to my five years at NATO and two years in Iraq with working with the security side of this house as well, which is security is also a key component of this. We didn't raise that in this piece, no. but you cannot end extreme poverty unless you're looking at it in a much more complex, holistic, not just in terms of health, development, income, enterprises, but also security in these spaces. And I think nonprofits have a role there as well because oftentimes when you swoop down from the central governments or large national cities mm. or even the peacekeeping forces, they have a hard time working in those environments. And I think we have to invest a lot more in grassroots community level work on the security front as well. Can yeah, I yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> we do not abandon a country because it doesn't work. Otherwise, we would have abandoned Myanmar. It's a very complex country for us. We would abandon Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and all the countries. We, we continue to be there. Uh, we just we just look for what it is we can who who and what it is we, who we can work with and how we can work the issue. Just wanted to clarify that uh, we do not abandon them. So, Ambassador, I wanted to make a couple of other points. I. I the, the, the phrase, and I'm a big believer in this, enlightened self-interest is a really important thing. And I think we should be, we've always been involved in global development since the Marshall Plan for enlightened self-interest. And I'm, I'm a, I, I, I get up in the morning and do this work because I believe in enlightened self-interest. But I want to make a couple of, a point about uh, the moral imperative. So could you talk, a, I mean, I, if I'm in, a, I'm in the pew on Sunday and I get the envelope for Lutheran World Relief, I'm probably not thinking about the the more the enlightened so I'm, you know the Washington swamp people think about enlightened self-interest but the but I think my my mom and dad if they're going to write a check to Lutheran World Relief or Catholic Relief Services care about the moral component of this we haven't talked about the moral imperative of this could you just just spend a second on that in terms of the morality of, of ending poverty and I mean, what, you know I, I suspect maybe your donors that's yeah. what's driving them you know what I love about the next generation when I hear about uh, their captivation with the environment and solving our environmental challenges is they see this ex as ex existential 
to our human race. And they put us all together in one group. And I think that's what you need to be thinking about here. And that's what happens in the church pew. For a moment there on Sunday, they stop thinking about categories of where we are, where the borders end and stuff, and think of us as humanity, which is where most religions put us, not just Christianity. Universal churches are supposed to be about we're all human. This is, we are connected. And a sign of the United States' civilization, a sign of our ability to kind of lead in this world is if we're the kind of country that cares about somebody at the very edge of extreme poverty for day to day, you don't know if children are going to live. If we can't have that kind of compassion in this world, what does it mean about compassion for our own community. And it, it's a sign that your own internal social societal system is going to start breaking down. Because if you can't care for that uh, child in, uh, living in famine in Yemen, the reality is you'll pretty soon be able to block out the fact that some people in a different state or too far away from you in the United States are having trouble. I wanted to just say a couple other things about the NGO. Uh, I, I, when I think about NGOs, not just faith-based NGOs, but others, I think about you all are brokers your conveners, your doers. Um, and so I do think you play a special role. I think a lot of the problems that we have in global development require multi-stakeholder partnerships. Yep. I, mean, I did that for a living for five years when I was at AID running the Global Development Alliance mm -hmm. Initiative. And so I think you all have play a special role in that. And your ability, you've gotten, your, your sector's gotten a lot better at working with the private sector yep. And talking private sector and hiring people and you know I think have gotten out of a siloed mindset. So I think you guys play a really critical role in this. I do want to make one other point. I'd love to get your reaction to these two points. Is I, I do think we I, I I don't know if I'm going to call it a post-Christian world, but you know I I do no, post-Christian North America at least. I just think that we underestimate and we certainly don't talk about it in in these kind of circles about how religious. The, the developing world is. Africa is really religious. I go to the global, I was in the Philippines three weeks ago, sorry, the Philippines, I was in Pakistan three weeks ago. It's, we, you know, they, they stopped to do prayer three times during a conference. Yeah. I mean, so I don't think we think in these terms in the West. Um, so I'd be curious about your, your thought about that yep. as well. Yep. Two quick answers. The first thing is absolutely in that convener role, and I think it works well because we do have trust in all those different circles. People understand why you're in the game, and they like the reason. Our challenge is often being understood to be expert in what we're doing, and I think we're getting much better now And people saying, oh, you have excellence on top of that. But the trust thing has been there, and so we work uh, with suppliers to Walmart in Nicaragua where our farmers are producing better, high-quality produce because that's in our interest to find a supply chain. Well, get paid more money and Walmart suppliers trust us more than they trust a, you know somebody who's in it for their own uh, purposes and so I think that works well in terms of the religious component it's really interesting absolutely much higher degree of religiousness in these other continents which helps again NGOs that are in the faith-based sector being understood and, and being conveners. Even in a place like West Africa where they're Muslim, they see a Christian organization and they actually say, I understand why you're doing this. You're doing the same reason we're doing it. And they don't right. reject us. They no. actually welcome us in those senses. 
The other dynamic, though, is here is even though in the U.S. the denominational affiliations, the people going to church is declining at a very rapid place. There I, is I, I a, feels like blockbuster video <laughs> yes. with, with mainline. There's a, with, uh, you know, it, there's a cliff. The Catholic but, Church or mainland Protestants. I, mainland but, I'm worried that because I, I think it would be bad for the country if, if we I, – I think a lack of faith in the United States is bad for our society and bad for the country. Right. And so what we're doing at a place like Lutheran World Relief is making sure we maintain that core support of people who identified with us because of a particular faith, but broadening that tent very widely, very quickly, and not requiring a label to be part of this process. Because what we're finding is the younger generation has the same principles. And in fact, if churches want to return people to their pews, focus on humanitarian work, like what we're talking about here today, it's and true. you will get a 20-something-year-old really excited about what you're talking about, because that's what faith means to them, or spirituality. Amen. Thanks, Ambassador. So, Sarah, I wanted to come back, uh, Sarah, to, to uh, you, I, I, I've been so impressed by what you've done with um, including women businesses in your supply chains. Can you just talk about that and just some, just some of the the sea changes you've made and just some of the, the choices you've made with your the power supply chain? Sure. So, you know, when we started looking at economic unlocks within our supply chain, we kept circling back to women. And for us, largely, you know, women are the majority of our suppliers. I mean, uh, the majority of our associates, they control the most consumer spending. When we talk about who's coming into our store, we talk about a Walmart mom, she. Um, and if you think about who's working in factories, women. Who's working on farms, women. Um, but then when you also think about economic opportunity, unfortunately the women, we didn't see the growth trajectory that we wanted to see. And so we started to unpack that a little bit and took a supply chain approach and said, what if we tried to disrupt this a little bit by focusing almost exclusively on women and saying, what if we trained women in factories on agency? and numeracy and literacy so that they understood more what's my role here in the factory and how do I save and could we train the middle managers too to have some respect for the women in their supply chains? What if we trained women on farms, um, which we did train um, half a million women on farms. Um, Just repeat the number again. So 500, we trained a million farmers, half of which were women thinking about how do we, not just training for training's sake, but what are the right practices and products so that we can link them to value chains. Um, and then on women-owned businesses, we put a really hairy goal out there and said, you know, for the United States alone, we'll source $20 billion over five years from women-owned businesses. Um, not really knowing how we were gonna do it, but figuring if we put a goal out there, our business would chase it. Um, and what we found was, it's actually, you know, and I think it's something to think about for development, which was when you put, when we put the market there, right there, I want to buy from you, you start to see the barriers a little bit clearer. You know, I know I want to buy from women-owned businesses. What's my obstacle I need to overcome? Well, one, they were pretty small, so our buyers didn't see them. So they, they may have been sourcing for women-owned businesses and just didn't know because they weren't meeting with them regularly. They were meeting with their big top-tier suppliers. So could we give our buyers a dashboard so they see them? Could we do some metrics and analytics about how those businesses are actually performing so there's an incentive to source from them? We, it, we found out it took us six months to onboard a new supplier at Walmart. Didn't have to, but nobody asked the question. So could we work with supplier administration and make that a two-week process? You know, things that were so obvious in some ways, but 
we just hadn't been deliberate and intentional about how we were being more inclusive in our sourcing. And some of our best practices actually came from our emerging markets and our develop, you know, our smaller developing markets because they didn't have big suppliers. So they had to figure out, if I only have one tortilla maker, I probably need two. What are the capacity building? How am I working with um, SME organizations? How am I working with the government? What kind of fairs am I doing? How am I involving my businesses so that they're doing the training as well? How am I working with groups like We Connect International? How am I working with the State Department and We Americas and USAID to think about what's the enabling environment to help these businesses? We were happy, we made our goals. Um, in the United States, we had a focus on doubling sourcing internationally. We're still working on that goal, largely because it was hard to get a baseline of women-owned businesses, um, but still working on that. And the good news about it is it's made us a better business because we have stronger suppliers who are more relevant to our customers. The second thing I will say is when we talk about systems change, though, is when you do exclusively focus on women or an intervention training, um, you're prejudging the outcome of the developmental impact. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, one of the things that we've recognized is we need to be thinking more about systems change and the role of women in the system. So now, our evolution now is to say, I'm so glad we did that. I'm so glad we learned. We kind of know what interventions are working. How do we take that into a more holistic systems approach? Because honestly, some of the women-owned businesses or some of the farming communities didn't need to be trained on good agricultural practices. They needed a daycare. So, you know, by saying, we're going to train you, okay, I've, I've told you what the intervention is as opposed to coming back, looking at a whole supply chain, cocoa or corn or grapes, and saying, how do we make this a sustainable supply chain? What are the things we need to do to create economic opportunity? And what are the right interventions without coming in with a pre- conceived notion. And I think that's some of the challenges we see still working with aid is that we develop a project and then come to me and say, hey, you want to join? Versus co-creating and thinking about how do we use all of our different assets. And it's harder because you have goals and you need to have, you don't want my in-kind, you want my money. But it's where we need to get to to actually have, I think, sustainable development. Or, or AID is stuck with, the, the Congress has given them a certain flavor of money and they've been told that, you know, figure it out, make it work, and yeah. so it, it makes it challenging. It makes it challenging, but if I, okay, so, so Rich, so um, I talked about cell phones. There's, got, there's a series of, tech, of technological breakthroughs in the last 40 years in health mm -hmm. that have also mattered. You talked about latrines. Talk a little bit what, of those technologies. What do you think has been the, what has been the most significant technological breakthrough in in global development in the last forty years? In the last how many years? Forty. Forty. <laughs> oh wow. Okay. Well, I'll start with ORS. Frankly. Yes. Um, That's what I was thinking. For for those of you who know oral rehydration salts, that it was uh, probably the simplest technology introdu ever introduced into development. Um, it scaled as soon as the science was uh, figured out. Um, it, it fit a price point for the extremely poor, and it saved their babies, millions. I don't know how you beat that. And, and uh, I still go around, when I go around traveling, working on other projects and so forth these days, I go into the local kiosks and ask them if they have any ORS, and they said, you bet. And I said, what's the price now? And in the local equivalent, it may have gone from those days when it was a penny a satchel to maybe four or five cents, but 
It's still saving lives in, by, by the vast numbers. So but I think it illustrates the kind of, you know, that that was a technology that uh, was completely untraditional uh, in terms of the extremely poor, but it, it hit their greatest anxiety in life. And too many people in the hard, sci hard sciences and engineering really don't look to that point in society to understand what their impact's going to be, or even that there are poor people uh, that could be um, affected by projects. Um, <clears throat> I, I was involved in, in investigating, when I was the World Bank, um, I was on the inspection panel, and I was investigating the Jamuna Bridge project in Bangladesh, and, uh, which was a World Bank ADB project. Um, and it was a wonderful bridge, made tremendous sense to unite the country. Um, the problem was that in, in bridging the Jamuna River, that they uh, created a, a new water flow that eliminated a whole series of islands that were seasonal. They were called chars, these islands. And the very poor people from the neighboring areas would go over onto these chars and grow crops during low water season. And they weren't even counted in the planning of the project because the people putting together the project were unaware that they existed. They were out there during high water season. And the national government did nothing because they had never counted these people. They didn't, they kind of knew they existed, but they didn't count. I mean, you know, they saw no reason to include them. So, so the poor often get overlooked when it comes to, to introducing this very large scale technology. I kind of think that probably, um, I'm sure you know the safeguard concept for environmental and, and some social issues, but the, the poor don't have a safeguard policy in these large financial institutions or in the private sector and so forth, even though they could be adversely impacted. And I, I shouldn't say that as a person who really likes science and technology, but the, it's, a, it's a fact of life. Um, and um, so testing out these, the, really the, the full impl implications of, of development projects with a big technology component need to be approached with some modesty. Um, but we can incorporate that. Maybe we can develop that over now and between now and 2030 as a major outcome of this particular SDG. <clears throat> that in fact, the, the poor are counted when it comes to development. So, so Rich, you, are, are we, are we going to see the kind, you talked about one example of a breakthrough in latrines. It seems to me that one of the big in addition to oil rehydration therapies and the cell phone, that if you could, if you could crack the code on the toilet in developing countries, that that would be an unbelievable, an unbelievable achievement. Is in your in your in the next ten years, could you imagine a scenario where we we have the equivalent of the cell phone for toilets? Oh sure, yeah. It's uh, but we've just not had the uh, both the the people who are willing to organize that, who are comfortable working in very poor areas. I mean, that's or one on of the, this topic. That's one of the, the NGO perspective, for instance, many NGOs are quite comfortable with that. And it, it's important that they get in there and, and take the leadership on the ground. Um, because people in the MIT design lab developing something like that, they're not the folks to go out there and actually implement it. Wonderful as their ideas are, and I, I applaud their, their work to try to come up with appropriate technology solutions. 
but it's going to take people who, who are willing to implement that on the ground. And that's going to scale very rapidly. It, I mean, these folks, and I, I fully believe it, there's, there's 100,000 people now using these latrines from Sanergy, and they hope by 2023 to have a million people in, in Nairobi using them. And uh, I see no so this could be the, this could happen. be the cell phone. This could be the cell phone of latrines. Hey, if if you were living in in a slum, yeah. Oh no! Man, oh no! I use it every day. I use it every day. You would want one. Dan, can I jump yes, in on that? Just to uh, to not I, I like the toilet discussion, but I also don't want to jump by the cell phone too quickly. Okay. Which is for me, the cell phone. We haven't even yet explored the explosion of positive. It's been, uh, so awesome. it's been so awesome. It's been so awesome on the development side. And one of the big pieces, I think, besides the technological pieces that we're using it for in our projects, but is also just the democratization of development. I think the cell phone is going to be the piece that allows us not to have to send a monitoring and evaluation person out there into the field to visit three of the f 50 villages and decide whether the project's been a success or not. There is going to be access to data in ways that there hasn't been before. This company that we acquired was working in South Sudan with DFID money, and they have increased the number of kids going to school from 800,000 to 1.8 million in a really tough environment like South Sudan using Nokia phones with teachers telling who's in attendance each day at the school, populating back to the Ministry of Education to let them know where the schools are being used to allow you to put resources into those places wow. and to then check on things. Uh, this kind of stuff of having data showing up in real time allows us then to start checking and allows us to build trust back into the aid business with these very poor communities. In addition, um, the cell phone has enabled poor people who have no access to brick and mortar banks to be able to be financially included um, just using the cell phone, um, paying or receiving what welfare funds that they get, et cetera. We've used that all over Asia, and it's been very successful. And it has been one of the most important um, techniques that we've used to to make financial inclusivity uh, <clears throat> be uh, available to pe poor people who cannot qualify or unable to travel to a place where there are banks. Well, if you look at so M-Pesa, which was sort of the first of this, this was supported by a DFID challenge grant, but then it, it it's big in the Philippines. It's big in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. There's probably, I mean, something like in Kenya, something like 30% of the GNP of the country flows through the, the M-Pesa cell phone. So, I mean, it's, it's really revolutionized. Uh, it's done so many positive things. It's been a real force of, force of good. Well, you've been a very patient audience. I'd love to bring some of you into this. I've got several people in the audience I'd love to call on if, if, if people are shy, but because uh, I think they're smart and interesting. So if I don't see hands, I'm going to start calling on people. So, okay, this gentleman here. Others, this woman here, and I want to hear from Lori Rowley. Okay, so. Hi, thank you very much. Great, interesting conversation. My name is Randy, Mar Randy Martin. I work independently in the NGO sector. Um, the country with the most people living in absolute poverty in the world is Nigeria, okay? India has five times more people, but less people living in absolute poverty. Nigeria is not a poor country. It's a middle-income country, right? It has two million people displaced who are not refugees. They're citizens of Nigeria. These people are certainly among the people that are most impoverished. Working there in the NGO sector is really, really frustrating. 
you can have all the creative ideas in the world about capacity building at community level, at the individual level, working on the last mile, whatever you want to do. But there's something systemically wrong about the way the economy in Nigeria works that keeps that many people living on less than $2 a day. All these ideas are great, but they feel really macro or micro. What is it that we can do at a macro level in countries like Nigeria that have the capacity but don't share it, that don't let it move down to the level of common people? Right, let me, let's bunch these together, this, this woman here, and then I'm here from Lori. Thanks. I'm Teddy Dow. I'm from USAID. So I want to um, build upon what Rich was saying, that there is no um, uh, silver bullet. Well, one of the stories of the last 10 years in development is the emergence of a model that claims to be a silver bullet, actually more like a silver anti-aircraft missile. Uh, and that's a very state-led model that actually doesn't really require a lot of commitment or capacity because on the commitment side you can borrow all the money that you need from a lender and on the capacity side that same lender is going to tell you what to build, how much of it to build, how much it's going to cost and it's going to build it for you. And um, a lot of countries have really um, gone for that model because as of last month the China Development Bank had $2.4 trillion in assets that they manage. So I just wanted to get the views of the panel on um, whether there is really a potential for countries following that model, whether that has an impact on extreme poverty. Good, Lori. I'm Lori Rowley with the Luger Center. Thanks for this interesting conversation. I could not help but notice in the first round of comments that each of you gave, every one of you had a, co a comment about the example in agriculture and food. And of course, Sarah, of course you would, but no one else had to. And of course, SDG goal number two is zero hunger. And I wanted to get your um, impressions about whether you think that's such a, a loss leader, if you will, the first piece on that road to SDG 1. And if it is, um, what you think is happening in that sector, if it's really enough to push to get to SDG number 1. Good. Okay. So, Rich, why don't I start with you and we'll just go this way and talk about either Nigeria or any, any of the three questions. So I've always been very interested in the hunger question. I must, I must say that, um, and I think that USAID has a long history of attempting to um, remove the hunger issue from a lot of the political forces that would otherwise distort the way in which we treat that. Um, for instance, the, um, the, uh, the pressures from the food aid programs, the uh, the question of the tension between um, importing food through our programs versus uh, purchasing it locally or regionally, which could help to alleviate poverty in, in the area. So <clears throat> I, I think it's a very interesting area, and I should say also it's, it's amidst a secular trend that the world is awash in food. It, it's, to me, it's quite extraordinary, um, just having seen that over time, because uh, first of all, famines are very rare today. 
it's very hard to have a famine um, at, a, at a sort of statistical level. Um, there's obviously pockets of real hunger, uh, particularly among the poor and, and the extremely poor people. Um, but that's a, a distribution issue. It's an income issue. And, and I, I still have trouble in my own mind kind of accepting some of that because we've we spent decades developing new technologies and new approaches. To well, I would just, let me just turn it over and say FuseNet, Rich. Rich was, FuseNet helped too, something AID invented, right? The right. And, and, and um, it's, it's become universally available. I, I, in human history, I, that's just mind-boggling. Um, and it's, frankly, it's, it's, I, there's, no, there's no real panic over the projected in, uh, population of 9 billion. Um, from food point of view, it's manageable if we can get it to the people. So the, then, then the issue does become that um, if food insecurity at the sort of the generally general sensitivity level is, has waned, has really gone away, um, there's far more. Pe there's people more, far more worried about being overweight than there are not getting enough food. And as we know, obesity has become a major health issue in many developing countries. Um, but then we, we have to figure out how do we do track those that are food vulnerable, because if it's the kind of population that have no no power, um, that um, that that aren't covered, there's then we have to ensure that we create systems that they do receive the food in, in, a, in a time of plenty. Um, and that would, that would really, when you think about what are the anxieties of the poor, um, having, having enough food has got to be right there among the top three. So that would, that would be, to me, a huge contribution by in, in the next 11 years to figure out a, a foolproof system. Do you want to comment on this issue of the China, the alternative development model? Well, sure. Um, you know, when I hear about the, re the huge reduction in poverty over the last 10 years, to me it's a Chinese statistical issue. I mean, they did something. Um, and it's obviously a highly centrally directed system where they can, they can manage their society down to the individual level. We've seen that in a lot of sectors. And so with regard to general poverty indicators, they have done that. It's quite extraordinary. The question is how many societies want to organize themselves similarly? In other words, to remove individual freedom, um, to be subject to the kind of, of strictures that they have. Um, and um, we're seeing a rerun of this now in Xinjiang. Um, we're, we're, we're seeing it in that they're stepping up the use of, of uh, ID systems for individuals. and. Um, I know this country's not gonna go that route. Um, we'll see about India. Um, new ID systems are being rolled out around the world. I've, I've been on, on the periphery of several of those projects. Um, so it's very fashionable as a way of delivering, ensuring delivery of social services and tracking people. Um, but I, I have a hard time believing it's gonna spread generally. Good, Sarah. Comment on uh, hunger and, and food. You know, we're the world's largest grocer, so food um, and food production and food waste are particularly interesting to us. And it's interesting how all of those issues connect in kind of a closed loop way, and that's the way we look at it. One, how are we helping on food production 
but also farm to fork and looking at food wastage and reducing food waste along the way because that will help with obviously growth, poverty, and um, better sustainable supply chains. But then on the other end, you know, one of the first things we did when we looked at our sustainable goals, and one of them was to create zero waste, was what are we throwing away? And a lot of what we were throwing away was food and good food, like milk and vegetables and meats because we had to pull them by sell-by dates. And so um, we ended up partnering with Feeding America. We had so much food, we had to actually use our philanthropy to buy them refrigerated trucks so that they could take the food from us and start redistributing it um, in a safe and affordable way to food banks and have looked to try to do that globally, thinking about you know, as a grocer, what are, there, what are the ways that you can contribute to reducing food insecurity and creating this whole closed loop? Um, same idea, too, about looking holistically at supply chains and looking at tomatoes. Okay, I'm going to source these tomatoes. Then what about these that don't meet grade? Can they go into another side of processing? And that's when what I was sort of talking about and looking at systems change and looking at the whole value chain and thinking about all of these goals together. On Nigeria, I have nothing to say. I don't have a particular expertise. I will say it's really hard for us to operate anywhere without rule of law. I mean, that's just a base fundamental for, for economic growth and security. And I don't know how you incent governments to think about the importance of rule of law. But, but it, it's very hard for businesses. It's very hard for citizens to operate when you don't have a sense of stability and security and predictability. And I would assume that, you know, we operate in Nigeria, and that's part of the challenge there. I'm hoping, Ambassador, you'll talk about Nigeria and or the China alternative model. Yes. <laughs> well, I actually did want to talk just real quickly about that because I spent three-plus decades trying to approach challenges from the State Department at a macro level, mm. you know, whether it's promoting yes. democracy or development or other kinds of things. And I feel, after watching it close up, that it's been an abject failure when we try to start by creating a national parliament, electing uh, their parliament, and then teaching them from the top down, supposedly, how to do a democracy. And what I learned is it starts at the grassroots. And that this isn't just, you know, because I work at an NGO now, it's because of that failed experience that it's, it's, and it goes back to my point, this isn't a project, it's relational. And relations start amongst people, and you and me, and my community, and my community, my local government first. If that's not working, my relationship with my national government isn't gonna work either. So for me, there isn't a substitute in Nigeria for not trying to take this piece by piece. You're not gonna solve it all at once, but pick a place. The most uh, and invest in those places and invest in those places on relational kinds of programs and projects, and I think when we've seen that when we do it in the United States, when you do it elsewhere, when you start with relationships, you can get people talking and you can start problem solving and you can get governments to be accountable. Uh, there is a technology role for that. There's all a lot of other things, but I just don't think there's a macro solution other than there is too, some policy. What we find there. is when you have when you have communities where you have spurred economic development, it leads to more political engagement mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, I'm not yep. paying taxes if yeah. you're not going to do any. And we've seen it yes. over and yeah. over and over, particularly yeah. with the women-owned businesses who are like, wait a minute, 
Absolutely. I'm going to run for uh, Absolutely. Uh, and in the case of China, where you do these centrally directed things, I still am very suspicious mm -hmm. that a lot of that wasn't some special rules uh, mm -hmm. were being allowed. China had a special place because we were promoting uh, China's development. Uh, and they, and yes. we, we consumed all that stuff that yes. pulled that a whole class of people out. Uh, of You're poverty. welcome, China. Uh, mm -hmm. So right. I'm not sure that's going to continue at the same rate, and I'm sure not sure that model applies because not every country has those speci that special treatment, especially if you're a smaller country. We didn't give that to Belarus or somebody no. else uh, <laughs> uh, that China had. So I'm still a little bit suspicious that that model is going to be sustained uh, to the long thing. In terms of hunger and kind of the last piece on, on my mind, uh, I'm most worried. I don't think we're going to make turn the corner here, and I think it's going to be because of climate change. I think our challenge and what we're seeing at the local level, and particularly the poorest countries uh, and in the most marginalized communities, is they are being hit by what's happening in terms of the changing climate and their ability to adapt and build resilience and our ability to keep up with that, we're, we're falling behind. So I am very nervous about that for those communities, not for the rest of the world, but for those communities. And the second piece is I'm very worried about is those are the same places where, if you haven't read it, read Dan Rundy's, uh article on uh, great uh, powers. Don't make it a Netflix night. <laughs> great powers competition. But oh. for me. This is the article from I, yesterday. Yes. Mm -hmm. But for me. In the I, hill that I, I did yesterday. I am really w most worried about we're sitting here thinking the world's going to stay like it is right now, and we can plan out our next 15 no, years. No. The rapidity with which, and my old State Department change, uh, uh, close how fast the world is changing in that sense on the geostrategic front. And if you look back at how it played out in the Cold War, who are the losers in the Cold War? Not the Soviet Union and the United States for the most part. It's the small countries where these proxy dynamics are and competitions are played out. And where are those places most fragile? And where can countries be bought the easiest? In the most marginalized. And it's going to be the poor people that pay this price. And so for me, my stump speech right now is do not accept that it has to happen, that we're going to go back to a great powers competition and it has to look like the last one. We have to stop. There's a moral imperative to try to turn this around before it becomes cemented. Good. Okay. I'd like to address yes, the two questions, one the hunger and then the Nigeria. I haven't worked in Nigeria in the Africa region for a very long time, but I think the issue of Nigeria overtaking India now with having the most number of poor people in the world is really astounding. And I think the rule of law issue is an issue, but I think we should not, we should not forget the power of citizens. I think that if you cannot work, I think it is a sequencing thing. If you cannot work at the macro level at this point, uh, you, we, we need to work with the people who are affected and empower them, work with, work with civil society, work with people who will demand change. And, um, and I think it's, it's going to be a slow process, but it has to start somewhere. Uh, at the same time, we can work with the government, look for reformers in government, and we have found them, even in the most corrupt uh, countries, where there is interest in doing something different and providing um, incentives like there will be no foreign direct investment or very limited foreign direct investment in a country where there is no rule of law, where contracts cannot be enforced. And so providing incentives at the macro level uh, to bring about change, but working at the local level with citizens to demand the change. 
on hunger and agriculture. I started my career as an agricultural economist, worked on food security with Michigan State at the Bureau of Science and Technology. That was the first uh, job I had in AID, actually. And I have thought a lot about uh, food security. It is a food security issue. And I, one of my frustrations is linking food security necessarily with agriculture. And I think you saw the example I gave, which was in order to address poverty and hunger in the rural area, develop markets around it. Uh, work in the urban area uh, in order for the farmers to be able to sell their goods and therefore be able to to have food on their table uh, on their tables and also uh, market for their labor when they are not producing but i think we always make the mistake of thinking that in order to be food secure we have to grow food i think as rich has said there is enough food in the world the problem is access and all of us don't have to be farmers in order to be food secure none of us in this room i think grow our own food we work in areas that we know what to do, like sit on a panel and get paid doing it. And so I think I'm back to... Someone's got to do this job, right? That's right. You know, we develop um, employment opportunities and not necessarily restrict farmers to be farmers because it takes a lot in order to be able to be a rich farmer, especially in a developing country. What we need is to give them opportunities, alternatives outside of farming, so that those who remain in the farm are those that can actually survive uh, in the farming area and create uh, employment opportunities elsewhere. That's the economic transformation. I mean, if you look at all the countries, that's what happens is people leave the farm, those that stay are those that can can survive um, economically, and then people do work outside of the farm. I'm That's sorry, we're going to have to end it here. I'm sorry about this, but uh, please join me in, in, in thanking the panel.